0: Uh, We are carrying on this morning through the book of Jonah. So if you have your Bibles with you, or you have your Bible up open, if you can go and look for the book of Jonah in the Old Testament of the Bible. And today we are going to be specifically focused on verses 5 to 6. Verses 5 to 6. Sorry, I just got to start my timer here. I always like... Having a stopwatch going... Okay, let me start that. So, I'm going to read to us this morning uh, verses 1 to 6, but our main focus is verses 5 and 6. Uh, The first two sermons were based on verses 1 to 4, but we need those verses to give us the context of what's going on here. Okay, the verses are not on screen. Uh, You're going to have to follow in your Bible. So, it says there, and I'm reading from the New International Version... Where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Let us just uh, pray before we dive into the text. Uh, Father God, we just uh, come before you um, and we acknowledge you. As our God, we acknowledge you as sovereign over all in all circumstances. And, Lord, we come and submit ourselves to you fully. Uh, Lord, you know my shortcomings. You know my sin. You know uh, the anxious thoughts and, and heart. And so I just pray, Lord, come and do what you want to do. Um, help us to know that when we are weak, you are strong. And I pray that that your words will speak loud to us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay. So the sermon title this morning is Call on Your God. And I have two main points. First one, we're going to look at woke sailors and a prophet, MIA, Missing in Action. If you don't know what MIA means, Missing in Action. And then second and concluding point will be the humble captain. Now, I would first off like to start today's message by taking us back again, um, just to look at the book of Jonah and to give us a bit of perspective and context again of who this prophet is and where we find this book placed in the Old Testament and what kind of a book it is. Uh, Glenn made note of that in his first two sermons that the the book of Jonah is a prophetic book. It is part of the prophetic literature or genre in the Old Testament. Uh, In the Bible, you have got different genres of writings that were written by people inspired by the Holy Spirit. So Holy Scriptures, but it's people that that are involved. And God works with people in providing for us what His will is. In the Old Testament, you've got Historical genre, you've got uh, wisdom literature, you have poetry, and then of course there's prophecy, prophetic literature. And so there's then two categories of prophetic literature. There is major prophets... And minor prophets, the major prophets are like we, we kind of like think of them as the big prophets of the day of Israel in the, in the Old Testament, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, but they're mainly called the major prophets because of the vast content the 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 great amount of content, the oracles that God spoke to those prophets or through those prophets to the nation of Israel, and then you have the minor prophets that follow that, and it's not a as though they are insignificant. They have got very important words from God, but there's not as much content. Now, what makes Jonah interesting is that Jonah is not a prophecy in itself. It's not an oracle from God to the nation of Israel. But it is rather as, you know, I I was watching one of the videos of the Bible project. I don't know if you look at the videos or if watch those little uh, videos there on the books of the Bible. And as they note there, Tim Mackey, I believe, is the, the main teacher. He says it's really interesting. It's, it's a story about a prophet and how God calls this prophet to go to the Gentiles. But it's actually then the story about how nasty, self-righteous, and quite narcissistic, I might say, this prophet is. This supposed man of God. And so it is really odd this prophetic literature that's there in the Bible and, and it's therefore a, a purpose, a purpose to, to talk to the people of God, even though he's not a prophet that's sent to the people of God. Now Jonah himself appears in the Bible, he was a, a literal person. okay He was a prophet. And he served in, uh, or as a prophet in Second Kings 14, verses 23 to 25. We, we see where he appears on the scene during the reign of a king called Jeroboam II. He was a wicked king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And at that stage or in that specific passage, Jonah gives a prophecy to King Jeroboam that's a, a favorable prophecy. He says, listen, you're going to succeed in what you want to do. You want to regain territory. You're going to make war. You're going to win. And what's really interesting is that Jonah's contemporary, Amos, who's another minor prophet, he actually is also on the scene. And later on, he prophesies against Jeroboam and he kind of like overturns Jonah's prophecy. (laughs) So uh, out of the gate, it kind of like makes us think, okay, what's going on here with Jonah? Like, can we trust this man of God? Like, uh, you know, is he accurate in what he's prophesying and what he is saying? And so that's firstly something that I want to make notice of and just point out. Uh, A second thing that I want to point out to us this morning is, again, the geography. You know, many times uh, we talk about Israel, we talk about the Middle East, but as someone that's from kind of like in that that column timeline there, uh, as a South African that lives in Canada, you know, uh, I always loved when I was teaching, I would tell the kids, I'm from South Africa. And then I asked them, do you know where that is? And then they're like, Asia? Yeah, no, no, South Africa. That's supposed to give you a clue. Okay? So many times in the church, we're talking about Israel, Middle East. And, I, and I'm not sure if people actually you know, know what the location geographically is. And I'm going to throw up there quickly a, a map. Now, I don't have my pointer, but there are, are three circles there. But this is kind of like a zoomed-in map of the Middle East. You've got there Joppa, which is the, uh, the port from which Jonah tried to flee. You've got there, outside to the left, you've got Tarshish. That's, I'm kind of like going to do a uh, zoomed-out shot of that as well. But then there to the right, you will see, is Nineveh. And Nineveh is basically modern-day uh, Mosul. I believe it's the city. It's modern-day Iraq. And it's kind of like in that area where Mesopotamia was and basically the origins of, of, of life, according to the Bible. That's where, uh, kind of like the area where the Garden of Eden was. Now, the next slide gives, us, gives you now that zoomed out picture again of now what Jonah did. Okay, There's Joppa, which is, again, it's, it's on the coast of Israel. Nineveh overland is around about 500 to 550 miles that God tells him to go and speak to this nation or to this city. But he chooses to get onto a ship that goes to Tarshish. I struggle to pronounce that, Tarshish. Okay? And that is roughly 2,500 miles. Okay? So that is just to give you, you can go to the next uh, blank slide there, please, Um, the, the extremity of the fact that Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh. It's, it's a huge distance that he decides to rather travel by sea. And it's clear he wanted to get as far away as possible from God's calling. Now, I want to point out that the text does not say Jonah is fleeing from Nineveh. The text actually says he was trying to flee from, from what? The presence of God. <laughs> which which struck me as really interesting and stupid, right? Like, who on earth? What on earth? Jonah, what kind of theology 101 or 201? What did you do at seminary, okay? Um, because if you think about the context here again, Jonah is serving in a time where their theology is the Hebrew. They've got the Old Testament. They've got the Torah, their Psalms. And... And this idea of fleeing from the presence of the Lord, he must have kind of like had an idea that this does, it doesn't work. Because the the Hebrew word that is used for presence of the Lord is panim or panech. And it's the same word that is used in Genesis 3.8. And I'll throw that on there. Genesis 3.8, we know the story. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth and and he created humans, humans in his image and likeness. And in Genesis 3, we have the story where humans rebel against God. And when they sin and they choose to live life according to their standard, it's basically them saying, no, we know what is right and wrong. They then do this. In Genesis 3, 8, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God. So I find it astonishing to think that this is a prophet of God Knowing that, listen, you cannot really flee from the presence of the Lord. And surely, you must have been aware of Psalm 139 verse 7. That was written by David. Psalm 139. And and David, of course, precedes Jonah, like roughly 200, 220 years, I believe. But this psalm says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? David writes. So that's really interesting for me, again. And and again, makes us question this prophet. Makes us question, man, is this guy really a prophet? Is he really hearing from God? Or is he obedient to God, I think is maybe the bigger question. Because we see out of the text, he does hear from God. (laughs) He's just struggling to obey. And I think this is what makes Jonah such an amazing and fascinating story. Because there's, in the book of Jonah... Something for everyone. There's something for, um, for believers, people that have faith in Jesus. There, there's something for people that are skeptics, atheists, agnostics, because we see in the text also a kind of like a response from Jonah that's similar to people that are skeptical, people that say that, well, listen, they, truly there's no God, but they try and live a morality And a goodness without really having a God. But there's no basis for that morality. There's no reason for it. But there's also then something for someone who's spiritual and maybe open to exploring whether or not there is really a God who is intimately involved in creation and sovereign over all and knows the intimate details of our lives. And that he is actually merciful and that he is good and that he is loving and that he is actually wanting to have a relationship with you. And so with that being said, that is kind of like the backdrop. That is what we we then jump into, the context of this situation in verse 5 and 6. And so let us look at our first point this morning. The Woke Sailors and a Prophet Missing in Action. Now, if you're not familiar with the term woke, it's a very popular term currently in our culture, specifically in the last year and a half, but it's something I believe that originated, what was it, in the civil rights movement, Uh, but it's talking, it's a term that talks about being alert about injustices and specifically prejudices uh, based on ethnicity race. Okay, that's kind of like what wokeness means. And I think uh, it's been hijacked by our culture to mean something that it is not. But it's kind of like, we're going to look at these sailors being woke, but I I mean it in a good way. Okay, verse 5. It says, All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Now, I don't know about you, um, what your fears are, or if you've got any kinds of phobias. What was that movie? I think in the 90s, 80s. What was that movie? Arachnophobia. Who remembers that movie? There was like a horror movie or something. Arachnophobia. Arachnophobia. Scared of the spiders. There's this is huge spider and stuff like that. Now I don't have phobias. I'm not scared of spiders. I don't like bees. I don't like the idea of being stung by a bee and kind of like so. My reaction to it is, you know, I try and squash it or get get away from it. Um, but I generally do not have fears or phobias. But Jean will acknowledge this that if there's something that I'm quite nervous about on many occasions, it is flying, and it's not. That I'm anxious before I get into the airplane, or uh, are anxious about, or worried about it. That I'm, I can't enjoy the flight. I actually really enjoy flying. We have, I, I counted this morning. I think we have crossed the Atlantic Ocean back and forth uh, between Canada and South Africa maybe uh, six times. So that's a dozen flights, maybe fifteen flights. That's a, that's that's far. It's long. Okay. And generally, I love flying. Like I'm excited about it. Like. Especially when they, you know, they bring your, your cute food, the small packages, and if you're on a good airline, the food is okay. And um, and then you snuggle up if it's an overnight flight or a red-eye flight. You get your, your, your uh, you know they have got cool air and and you can just hear people calming down and you're just you know trying to snuggle in in this very uncomfortable economic class seat. But then what I do, what what gives me anxiety is then, when you've just fallen asleep and maybe two hours or three hours into it, and you know you're crossing the Atlantic Ocean and then boom, 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 you hear the, the bell go off and it's like, okay, seat belts need to be on, there's turbulence, and the captain comes on and he says, okay, listen, make sure that you're seated. And I've been on a couple of flights where there's been really bad turbulence, and You can ask John, like I generally, like I pray, I pray when that happens, if it's really bad turbulence, um, up and down, and it feels like we're moving thousands of feet, but it's most probably just like maybe this, that the airplane's moving. I don't know what turbulence actually looks like if you're on the outside of the plane. But I go in kind of like a panic mode. But to be quite honest, all of us know, or if you didn't know this, you know, Air transport is the safest mode of transport that there is. It is uh, like your odds of dying as a result of a commercial airplane crash uh, in 2006, I believe, for the research. No, 2015, the research said it's like one, the, the odds were one in 5.4 million. Um, in 2006, the The stats was that it showed that the annual risk of dying in a plane crash was about 1 out of 11 billion. Now, if you compare that to traveling by land with cars, listen to this. um, Airplanes, it's a 0.07 deaths per 1 billion miles in comparison to 7.28 deaths per 1 billion miles with, with cars. But in general, I'm not super nervous about traveling with a car, right? Now, what's my point in sharing that information here this morning? If I were really wanting to be anxious flying, I would have to watch the the air hostesses or the attendants. They're the ones you need to watch because they have flown back and forth on those routes like so many times. And they are trained to keep you safe. I was listening to... Um, an interview with an Aerostase, I can't remember, she had written a book that's now a bestseller and they're making a movie uh, about this book. But she just said, you know, the job of an an Aerostase or a uh, a flight attendant is safety. It's not to serve you food and drinks. (laughs) They're not waiters or waitresses. And to be quite honest, if I've been on flights, I've never been on a flight where I've noticed air attendants or flight attendants being nervous. Because I watch them. I'm like, just check what they're doing, eh? Okay? How does that relate to the story? Well, you see, these sailors were experienced sailors. They were experienced sailors. They were not just some random dudes that decided, okay, let's try and go sell some merchandise in Spain. And let's take the ship. Um, History tells us that in that area and in that period of time, there was a group called the Phoenicians, which is actually the Greek name for the Canaanites. And they were regarded as the princes of the sea. What is really fascinating that I read was that actually the Philistines, who are Israel's arch enemies, like from the Old Testament and Goliath came from that people group, they were called the people of the sea by the Egyptians. And so, they were princes or people of the sea. They were experienced sailors. They had gone back and forth on that route maybe hundreds of times. Who knows? Now, the text does not explicitly tell us that, that they are experienced, but we can can rightfully assume that. I was reading some some commentary on that. Timothy Keller pointing that out, that they are most probably experienced sailors. And the, the odds of them being Phoenician is kind of like, um, substantiated through archaeological evidence. Like I did a bit of just a quick search and I found an article by the Met Museum in New York. So it's not some fake. <laughs> I, I know that some years ago people were, you know, sharing articles on Facebook and maybe you've got friends, Christian friends, they will say, hey, listen, they had found uh, some Egyptian kind of like artifacts down in the Red Sea. Okay? Unfortunately, they had been. Many of those things that were fake. But this, there's, there's an archaeologist. His name is Mark Pulser. And he has done a lot of archaeological work in the Mediterranean Sea. And found some of these merchant shipwrecks. And what he had found through that research is that they found many objects on these shipwrecks. That was indicative of the fact that the people that were sailors, that were part of this... Um, kind of like people group, were superstitious. They were polytheistic. And, yeah, they had expensive merchandise on these ships. I'm quickly going to throw up there to you just a couple of slides to give you an idea of what that ship would have looked like. This is a an actual remake of a Phoenician ship that they that they did that actually sailed on the sea. And then some archaeological findings that they, oh sorry, that one is a a kind of like indicating to us what that ship could have looked like and where they would store the merchandise, and most probably where uh, Jonah had gone to fall asleep in there at the bottom of the ship. But the next one, just to point to you, those are some photos, some artifacts that they found. And so the one on top is an altar. And what this guy, Mark Pulser, says is that this is indicative of the fact that These people were superstitious, worshipping other gods, and they would make sacrifices on these ships, on these journeys, to appease their gods. Uh, At the bottom, what they had also found were at one stage lots of ivory tusks. I think the number that they pointed out there, like 50 different ivory tusks that they found at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea in these shipwrecks. And what they kind of like say, you can go to the next uh, blank slide, is that these tusks um, were not necessarily traded as raw materials, but they are inscribed, Paul rites. writes. And he believes that the inscriptions classify the objects as objects that were given to deities by individuals to maintain the favor with those gods. And so I know what you're thinking at this stage. You're like, oh my hat! what kind of a church is this? I didn't come to a geography or archaeological lesson, right? You're thinking, come on, Rudy, what's the point? Okay, I get it. So what? Well, here's the thing. We see a reaction by these sailors after verse 4. It says at the end of verse 4, the ship was starting to break up as a result of the storm. In other words, these sailors being very experienced, having gone through maybe hundreds of storms before, they know that this is not your usual storm. And their reaction is really interesting, of course, in what they do. And it's kind of like something that we can relate to. They immediately turn to who? They turn to their own gods. They pray to their own gods. Maybe they make sacrifices to their own gods. It doesn't say that. But looking at the archaeological evidence. And I think we as people in general are the same. When we're in our storms or in the storms of life, whether it's a storm that is specifically caused and sent by God, or just in general a storm as a result of the fact that in this life you will face storms, because we live in a fallen world, we do the same thing. We turn to our own gods. We turn to those things that make us feel safe and secure. You see, because even I as a Christian have to look at their response, and how they turn to their own gods, and how they throw their cargo off of the ship, I have to say that I, as a follower of Jesus, can maybe sometimes look like a pagan. Because the way that I react to the storms in my life does not reflect, perhaps, that Jesus is Lord of all. And it can take various forms. It can take the form of having a superstition or a belief that something that's happened in my life is now as a result of me doing something wrong. I'm kind of like that as soon as I thump my toe or I fall or have a fall on my bike. There is something ingrained in me that I jump to the conclusion, man, why did this happen? Is God trying to punish me? I don't know if someone can relate to that. You feel like, hey, what is going on? But it's kind of like superstitious. It's not, it's not based on any truth of God. It can take the form Of us trying to find our security in the secular gods of this world. In the cargo of our life. Our investment portfolios. Our houses. The real estate market. Our communities. Our recreation. Our church communities. Or the idea of church or a brand. That could be kind of like an own God that I turn to. And that is quite perplexing. It's troubling. And what we can also sometimes do, I, I've got another example of what I've heard before in the Christian community. We, we actually take the right God. We take Jesus and we make him our own God. We make Jesus our Jesus, my Jesus Would never do this. Have you ever heard that someone talk about that? And I think there are songs that talk about my Jesus. The question is, who is your Jesus? Because many people feel that their Jesus would not talk to them about certain topics. would not talk to them about their sin or maybe what their eyes are looking at. Their greed, lust, and the list goes on. And so I think, firstly, their reaction, I have to go and compare my life to them and say, hold on, how am I reacting perhaps like this pagan or these pagans? But on the other hand, if we go and have a look, we, we need to ask, okay, so what about the man of God? What a guy, right? <laughs> Jonah. What, what is his reaction? Can we... Criticize the pagans and say that the man of God is actually in the right. Well, let's read. He says, he he does this. It says, Jonah had gone below the deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. What a prophet missing in action. But I was thinking about this. I I don't want to be too critical of the guy because I've been on a, a fishing boat before off the coast of Balakula, it's a pretty calm sea. And, uh, you know, I was out there catching halibut the one day. And even on that calm sea, doing that for an hour, I got seasick. Like, I felt terrible. And you know what I wanted to do most? I just wanted to go and lie down somewhere and sleep. Okay? But, okay, the text does not say he's getting seasick. But I'm just thinking, like it's the it's the mother of all sea storms. Like I gotta think Jonah is not an experienced sailor. I gotta think that this guy panicked or felt seasick. But okay, let's let's forget that idea. Perhaps let's say that's just Rudy. Okay, let's think that's just Rudy. His reaction is pretty. Yeah, it's pretty selfish, right? Goes down to the bottom of the ship and he falls asleep. And Timothy Keller in his book, The Prodigal Prophet, writes and he points out that the Scottish minister Hugh Martin called this the sleep of sorrow. That it's most probably... Almost similar to what we see with the prophet of Elijah, right? Like Elijah, after he defeats the prophet of Baal, he's emotionally drained and he knows Jezebel is out to kill him and he runs away and he flees and he, there's a darkness that comes over him. And it's kind of like that picture where I think Jonah and scholars just say that he is overwhelmed with the consequence of his sin. He is running away from God. He is now in the storm there's maybe no hope, he's anxious, he's depressed, well, I'm just going to disappear. I'm going to head into a very, very deep sleep. You know, I can associate with that. My first year at university was kind of like that. If I reflect back on it, I was most probably, for the first half of my first year at university, most probably depressed, dealing with the fact that my father had passed away six months before that and not really knowing where I was going. I tell you, I slept so much. Like I would write exams or tests the next day. I, could, I couldn't care less. I was like, I just need to sleep. I feel so, I feel like I've got no purpose not knowing what I'm doing. And so with Jonah's reaction, we can now go and ask, okay, but listen, what, what is there to say about this? Rudy, what is your point here? What, what, are you, what are you saying about the woke sailors and the prophet who's missing in action? Well, I think first of all, we can go and compare ourselves to the pagans and say, well, okay, they're turning to the wrong gods, and how can I turn to the wrong gods, my own gods? And I look at Jonah as his reaction. He's very apathetic. But how should I have reacted? And Timothy Keller points this out, that in this situation... We actually do have to give these pagans credit in their reaction. And he contrasts Jonah and what he does with these pagans. He writes, while Jonah is out of touch with his peril, these sailors are extremely alert. While Jonah is thoroughly absorbed by his own problems, they are seeking the common good of everyone on the ship. They are woke in a good way. They realize we're in trouble. We're going to die. We need to do something. And they turn, yes, to their own gods. They pray, but it's the wrong gods. They pray, but Jonah does not pray. They are spiritually aware enough to sense that this storm is not a natural storm. And they are astute enough to conclude that the tempest is of divine origin and possibly a response to someone's sin. And the question I think we have to ask ourselves this morning, if we look at the story is, am I alert and spiritually aware like these woke sailors? Do I realize that actually what's going on in the world, that actually that's what's happened in the last year and a half and, and what's forever happened since Jesus's life, death and resurrection on the cross, that that had been the start of the end of times, the end of days, that we're living in an age where everything that is happening is happening sovereignly under God's guidance. But there are many things and storms that are taking place that is actually wanting to wake us up. To wake up the church. But it seems to be like we as the church have perhaps fallen into a deep sleep like Jonah. And it's no wonder we have got a world that turned to awokeness And a social justice emphasis. And such a desire to see it happen out of their own strength. It's no wonder. Because the prophet is asleep. Where are the prophets? Where are the people of God? I think that is a very hard question to ask. And it might seem very critical. But I have to ask myself that, that question. Because I will be the first one to admit that my reaction to what happens in our culture and what we see play out through the political, theatrical state of, of what politics has become or have become and, and culture wars. Like, I, my reaction is not, it, it's Jonah's reaction. So how about, how about you this morning? And lastly... I want to move us to my concluding point. What do we see happen in verse 6? My second point, the humble captain. Pagan captain. Verse 6, he say, it says there, the, the captain went to him, this is Jonah, and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that We will not perish. In verse 6, we see the irony of the situation. It's once again an upside-down picture. Very much like Jesus' upside-down kingdom. We see a pagan captain's spiritual eyes opened. He's awakened. He's, He's realizing that, listen, we have done everything we can do. We have prayed to our gods. We have thrown cargo into the sea, very expensive cargo, cargo that was supposed to bring us money. We're not going to receive our money. When, what are we going to do if we get to the other side? And, and his last resort is, there's this guy asleep in the boat. There's a connection. Call on your guard, man. And the irony is, in this situation, that this pagan captain, the words that he uses, according to, again, quoting Timothy Keller, it's really interesting. When he says, arise, it is the same Hebrew word that is used by God in verse 1 when God says, go to Nineveh. God says, arise, go to Nineveh. And now you can imagine, here is Jonah sleeping, you know, woken up by this pagan captain. And here is a Gentile, someone that Jonah is not really actually supposed to be around. And he tells him God's words, rise, call on your God. So we see Jonah, who is supposedly a humble and moral righteous person amongst these people on the ship, actually being showed up by pagans and Gentiles. He is the one who is apathetic. He is the one who is Missing in action while these pagans are desperate. And they are desperate for perhaps a God that is alive and that can save them. My concluding verse or scripture that I want to point us to to bring this to an end this morning comes from Romans 8. Verses 19 to 21, and I believe in this is basically what is happening in our world and how it relates to this specific situation. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul writes and he says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. This passage is talking about the fact that all of creation, nature, together with humans, we are currently Under frustration that the creation is awaiting for the new Jerusalem. The renewal of all things. Jesus coming back, making all things new. They are waiting. But how, how is that supposed to take place? Through the revelation of the children of God. In other words, the agent Jesus is using to bring about the fulfillment of the kingdom. And that is us, the children of God, the church. You see, I don't just believe that Jonah is pointing us to the biggest story. Yes, ultimately, the story of Jonah, correct, point, correctly pointed out by the majority of, of scholars. And Jesus shows us this. It is about him. It's, it is about what Jesus did to be a better Jonah. It's about how Jesus is the one who... Live the perfect life. A sinless life. Who died for the sins of us. Pagans. Understanding that we were enemies of God once. And he did that to bring us back into relationship to God. But not only did he die. But he rose from the dead. Just like Jonah. After three days in the belly of the fish. Was spit out. So Jesus was three days in the belly of the, the underground. The but he was risen, he rose from the grave. But Jonah is not only about that, I believe it is a story about the calling that Jesus has now on those who are the children of God, for which the world is awaiting. It is that calling to go and make disciples of all nations, to share the good news with them. That listen, you you can stop sacrificing to your own gods, they are dead. You can stop turning to the ways that are futile and that actually lead to more and more anxiety. It's not going to help. There is a living God. Call on your God. I think Jonah is a story about the eyes of the children of God being awakened. So that the creation can see. Oh, those, those are the people. That's the real Jonah that. Is what real wokeness looks like. That is what justice is. And that they in turn. Will turn and call upon. The God of Jonah. Jesus Christ. Final verse. Romans 10 verse 13. It says. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Will be saved. Church. Do we realize. By God's sovereignty. Even at this very point in our lives, that even if we might be like Jonah, which I will admit I am, God is working in all things for the good of those who love him. And in the midst of the storm that you're in, we need to hear the voice of that captain. Call upon your God. I believe if we respond in that way, if we will call upon our God, that He is faithful, that He hears us, and that He calls us to come close to Him as a child of God. And so that is an invitation for all of us, whether you are already a Christian or not a Christian yet, that is your invitation here today. Jesus is calling you to say, He is the one who is sovereign over the storm. He is the one who is not asleep in your ship. He is the one who is sovereign and in control. And maybe today is a day for you to turn back, arise, call to Jesus. Let's pray.